0: How are we doing this morning? Good. Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm going to start with a reflection. What happened last week in Orlando was hell on earth. In that nightclub on a Sunday morning, 50 people lost their lives. 50 people. 50 people lost their lives who were connecting at the one place that they felt safe to let go, to be themselves. And now we mourn. We mourn those who lost their lives. And our prayer is that many, many people surround those who are hurting by simply weeping with those who are weeping. And with today being Father's Day, we especially pray for the fathers and father figures who are grieving the loss of their own sons and daughters. It's times like these that remind us that all of creation is crying out for the kingdom of God to arrive on earth in its fullness so we don't have to experience the kinds of things that went on last week anymore so that we don't have to live in fear. But today we also mourn something else. I read recently in an article that the Pulse nightclub in Orlando was the only place of sanctuary, of home, of family for many in the LGBT community. The article also spoke of the many places that are not safe for LGBT folks. In many churches, they are told that they are unacceptable. In public spaces, they are heckled and harassed. At work, they have to hide who they are in order to avoid possible firing. In politics, legislation is actively being passed so people can refuse them services at a variety of locations. And in love, they are told that they are abnormal and broken. So the nightclub, became their home. I pray that we, the church universal, the global church, can become a home once again that is safe for all of those who feel like and are told that they don't belong. I also pray that we, the church universal, the global church, can be agents of peace and of change so that these types of tragedies are not in our future. Amen. Amen. So today is Father's Day, and I'd like to take just a second and give a shout-out to my dad. I, I love my dad, and I love him for a multitude of reasons. I love him because he always filled our house with laughter. I love him because he is incredibly smart. He has a photographic memory, whereas my mind is very porous and so I appreciate the fact that he's always willing to teach me again and again the things that I forget especially when it comes to bathroom renovation projects I love the fact that he always encouraged my sister and I to be who we wanted to be I love how he always carries a certain light-heartedness to him and I love how he painted the world in a very big way he painted the picture of a world that was full of adventure. Thanks, Pops. And thank you to all the fathers and father figures out there for being loving, caring individuals to all those you encounter. So, how many out there would consider yourselves to be idealists? Show of hands. Okay. And how about realists? Any pragmatists out there? How about the realists? Okay, okay, that's pretty sizable. We've, we've got a pretty good half and half kind of mix here. So, what I'd love for you to do is to uh, pick an idealist and a realist and get together and do it. I'm just kidding. But I do have um, something to tell you, I do have a confession to make. I, I, my name is Nick. And I am an idealist. I'm a broad strokes kind of guy who doesn't really like getting bogged down in the nitty gritty of all the things. I just want the big ideas to happen and I want them to happen yesterday. I love brainstorming and I love abstract ideas. I'm drawn to visionaries and big picture kinds of people. And I love, love, love not accepting the world as it is but as it could be. Those are the kinds of things that fuel me. And on the other side, we have the realists, and you guys have a lot of good stuff going for you as well. These folks are really good at taking the world as it is and making the best of it. They're really good at getting people from point A to point B. They're really good at sifting through mountains of details to make a viable path forward even on complex issues. And they are masterful at negotiating compromise. But when these two sides stand at odds with each other, we can be pretty harsh. We've got some pretty harsh things to say about the other, don't we? For instance, idealists, right? We have these big ideas. All of a sudden a realist walks in the room and they start saying how those things will never happen. That can be frustrating, and so what do we call the realists sometimes in those moments when we're not as healthy? We call them defeatists, Uh, we call them cynics, and we call them pessimists, right? That's what we call them. But then on the flip side, there are plenty of things that can be said the other way. So say a realist is sitting there and, and working on a project, and then in walks a couple of idealists. And we start throwing wrenches into things because all we, we have all these big ideas that we want to have and we're just creating all this work for the realist. And so the realist will sit back and go, oh man, you guys are just young and naive and you guys, you guys don't know how the real world works. You guys are living in la-la land. <laughs> Come back down to earth and stop creating more work for me. Those are the kinds of things that we can say to each other. And in this particular political season, I haven't necessarily seen it on the Republican side as much, but on the Democratic ticket, we have been witnessing an idealist and a realist just duking it out for months, haven't we? On the one side, we have Hillary, a longtime Democrat who is definitely a pragmatist, right? And on the other side, we have Bernie with his crazy, crazy hair. And this guy is a Democratic Socialist, who is not young by any stretch of the imagination, but he is definitely an idealist. And after watching debate after debate after debate, we've begun to see a particular narrative forming, haven't we? And the narrative goes something like this. Bernie has a lot of great ideas, but they will never happen. And Hillary, she, she knows how to get things done. And it's funny because when you look at all the exit polls after people, have went, after people went to the ballot, we've noticed something. We noticed that these negative stereotypes that I just laid out actually played themselves out. People under 45 are trending towards Bernie. People over 45 are trending towards Hillary. Fascinating stuff. And, and all of this made me start to ask a bunch of questions. It made me wonder, do we really have to be at odds with one another? Do the idealists and the realists have to stand in opposition to one another? Are one of these qualities more admirable than the other one? Is one of these things just for the young and naive, while the other is for people who have weathered many seasons in life and know how the real world works? Is this the way it has to be? And then it made me wonder, I wonder where Jesus lands on this whole idealism-realism spectrum, right? I wonder what camp he is in. Is he an idealist? Ah, I hope so. Is he a realist? I mean, that'd be okay too. And all of these questions led to our text today our text today is John 14 verses 1 through 14 I'm gonna be reading from the message translation and before I read I'm just gonna give us a little bit of context so the Jesus Jesus and the disciples just finished the Last Supper right Judas went off to betray Jesus and now we come to John 14 and shortly after John 14 what happens right Jesus is arrested tortured and executed so this is a pretty critical juncture in the life of Jesus and the disciples, and this is the exchange that takes place. Don't let this throw you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my God's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live, and you already know the road I'm taking. Thomas said, "'Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road?' Jesus said, "'I am the road, also the truth, also the life. No one gets to God apart from me. If you really knew me, you would know God as well. From now on, you do know God. You've even seen God.'" Philip said, "'Master, show us God, then we'll be content.'" You've been with me all this time, Philip, and still you don't understand. To see me is to see God. So how can you ask, where is God? Don't you believe that I am in God and God is in me? The words that I speak to you aren't mere words. I don't just make them up on my own. God who resides in me crafts each word into a divine act. Believe me, I am in God and God is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see. These works. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things, because I, on my way to God, am giving you the same work to do that I've been doing. You can count on it. So, in this text... Jesus is talking about how he won't be with his disciples for very much longer. And naturally, you hear a couple of concerns being raised by both Thomas and Philip. First, we have Thomas saying, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? And with that question, I think I just figured out Thomas. He's a total idealist, right? He, he had the vision that Jesus, he loved the vision Jesus has, but realizes that he has no clue how to stay on the road that Jesus has been paving. And then we come to Philip a little bit later on who says, Master, show us God and then we'll be content. Ha-ha! Another idealist. Both were captivated by Jesus' vision, but were scared of carrying the torch when Jesus goes away to a place that they can't yet go. But Jesus' response to them, I think, gives us a glimpse into where Jesus lands on this whole idealism realism spectrum. Jesus first tells them to trust in him like he trusts in God. And then he says this, God who resides in me crafts each word into a divine act. So here we have word becoming action. Or to put it another way, we have vision becoming flesh and bone. Hands and feet. And this isn't a new concept, right? Like we see the same thing echoed throughout the scriptures. In the creation accounts, for instance, we have God speaking, and then boom, creation happens, right? And then if you go to the beginning of John's gospel, we also have in the beginning there was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and bone and moved. Into the neighborhood. Word becoming action. Needless to say, this response that Jesus gave didn't help me in my quest to figure out whether or not Jesus was just an idealist. Instead, it made me realize that Jesus probably rode that line and was both an idealist and a realist. And that's what Jesus does, right? I mean, we see throughout the Gospels the religious leaders trying to trap. Jesus, through poorly worded, (laughs) binary questions, right? It's either going to be A or B. And either way, Jesus is going to lose in that scenario, right? But time and time again, Jesus comes back with option C, the third way, right? And it always confounds the Pharisees. And I realized that I had fallen into that trap. I was asking a bad question, And Jesus' response confounded me. So what I decided to do after I mourned the loss that Jesus was not just a diehard idealist is that I began to look for examples of word becoming action, of vision becoming hands and feet. And there's a couple examples that I found that I'd love to share with you. So a number of years ago, I read this book, A Force More Powerful. It chronicles 100 years of nonviolent resistance that's happened all over the world. It's a great, great, great book. And in it, there's one particular story that really stood out to me. It takes place in Denmark in the middle of World War II. So Germany just decided to occupy Denmark, and they did so without having to fire a single shot. How did they do this? Well, the Danish king just immediately surrendered. And the Danish and the German government came to an agreement. The agreement was this. The Germans would allow the Danish government to do everything that they do as long as they helped Germany out with a few things, like warships and guns and armaments and those kinds of things to assist in the war effort. So they reluctantly agreed to do this. At the same time this was happening, this kid, Came onto the scene. A 17 year old kid named Arne Sire. And this kid made a document that came to be known as the Ten Commandments of Being a True Dane. Let's read these Ten Commandments together. You must not go to work in Germany and Norway. You shall do a bad job for the Germans. You shall work slowly for the Germans you shall destroy important machines and tools you shall destroy everything that may be of benefit to the Germans you shall delay all transport you shall boycott German and Italian films and papers you must not shop at Nazi stores you shall treat traders for what they're worth and you shall protect anyone chased by the Germans these Ten Commandments that were written by a 17-year-old Danish kid became the unifying document for Denmark during the war. So when the war started heating up, something crazy started to happen. This document, these Ten Commandments, began to be lived out by large amounts of the Danish population. And here's what they did. Naturally, the Danish citizens didn't like the fact that they were forced to work on German weapons and German warships. And so what they decided to do immediately was call a general strike. So they striked in mass, right? Once they striked in mass, Germany decided to impose a curfew on the population. This did nothing but exacerbated things. So the Danish government eventually stepped in, and they negotiated a truce. In exchange for Germany lifting the curfew, the Danish residents agreed to go back to work. Reluctantly, but they went back to work. But they weren't done yet. These, these Danish people, they're crafty. They're crafty. And so because striking in mass wasn't gonna work anymore, they, they went to plan B, which was called the go home early policy. And this makes me laugh a lot. So what they did was Germany decided to go ahead and re-implement that curfew and the Danish people decided, well, you're going to do that, we're going to need to leave work a couple hours early. Why? Oh, because we've got to go home and garden. They decided that because the curfew was in place, the Danish citizens made this case and won out that they would not be able to tend to their gardens like they needed to, and so they needed to skedaddle out of work a couple hours early. Which, what did that mean? That meant that the Germans were getting their stuff a lot slower. So the Danish people could go home and water their lilies. It was fantastic. It's so creative. (laughs) I loved it. And it didn't stop there, too. So the the Danish people who were working on building a warship for uh, the Germans, in addition to this go-home early policy, uh, they decided to implement several two-minute work stoppages throughout every day. So not only were they working very slowly, dropping many nuts and bolts and being, oops, I'm so careless, <laughs> they decided every now and again, in addition to working slowly, they're like, I just gotta take a breather just for a couple minutes. <sighs> and then they'd pick up their tool, drop everything again, and work very slowly. <laughs> and then take, ah, oh, it's another two minute break. I just go, Man, this, this whole battleship building thing really takes it out of you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And this is what they did day in and day out. This was so effective that Germany did not ever end up getting a battleship from Denmark. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) And probably the most profound example of the Ten Commandments being lived out uh, had to do with this picture. So Germany at one point decided they wanted to round up all the Jewish people that were living in Denmark. Now, the Danish citizens caught wind of this, and they, they decided, okay, we've got we've to act and act fast. And so what they decided to do was, with the help of Danish fishermen and women, they loaded as many Jewish people up onto these fishing vessels and shipped them over to Sweden where they would be safer. So that by the time they did so much of this that by the time Germany ended up going around to round up any Jewish people who were living in Denmark, they only could find a couple hundred. What a striking example of word becoming flesh and bone, right? Of vision becoming action. These 10 commandments that were enacted by the Danish citizenry, it resulted in a mass social movement that resulted in the Germany's forces being stretched because of Denmark's non cooperation And there's another example of this kind of thing happening this time from scripture. So Jesus gives us plenty of examples of the kingdom of God. Yeah. He talks about the kingdom of God as being like the hidden treasure or the pearl of great price. He talks about the kingdom of God as being like a mustard seed. We also have the sermon on the Mount. We have Jesus talking about how when we make space for the least of these, we make space for Jesus. And in the Hebrew scriptures, Uh, we hear the kingdom of God being expressed as being a peaceable one, right? Where nations beat their swords into plowshares, where the lion will lay with the lamb, where the outsiders are let in, where the captives shall be freed. Paul, when talking about the kingdom of God, says that there is no rich or poor, man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. All are one in Christ. Folks, this is our visionary document. The scriptures are our Ten Commandments, right? I mean, we have Ten Commandments in the scripture. That's our visionary document. And so we get to the early church. Now in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, we had thousands of people flocking to Jesus' new community, right? And people were doing this despite the fact that there was immense persecution happening, which is pretty, pretty like, that's pretty solid, yeah? But in addition to that, not only were they flocking despite the persecution, they were flocking even though relatively few people were actually publicly proclaiming Jesus as Lord. There weren't that many people doing it. So if there weren't that many people publicly proclaiming Jesus as Lord in the early days, and there was immense persecution, why were people, how were they finding out about this? Why were they joining up by the thousands? They were doing this. Precisely because the community of Jesus' followers took the word, the vision of God, and turned it into action. People saw the concrete life of the Christian community, and it looked so good to them that they couldn't resist it. They had to sign up. There's no other choice, really. And so what, what did the early Christian life actually looked like, right? So what what, what was the reality on the ground? You know, because we have this visionary document, but what was actually happening in those first centuries immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection? There are a couple examples. There are many examples of what the Christian life actually looked like, and I'm just going to read a couple of them for you that come from the second century. This first one comes from Aristides' Apology. Here's what is said about the Christians. They don't embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. And their oppressors, yeah, they comfort them, and they make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And when they see a stranger, they take him to their homes and rejoice over him as their very brother. And if there is any among them who is poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food pretty good yeah and here's another example this time from the roman emperor julian and as i read from this one just understand that when i say atheists (laughs) uh, they are referring to us the christians so here's what roman emperor julian has to say about the christians why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism When the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all people see that our people lack aid from us. You hear that? Rome, an enemy of Christianity, is trying to figure out how to fix their own public relations problem. And they're losing the PR battle precisely because the Christians were living out the vision that Jesus had. And because of the actions of the Christians, they didn't need a whole lot of words in order to attract thousands. Their very lives were their prayer. But how do we do this today, right? So this, I'm talking about a lot of stuff that happened way back when. You know, what, what do we do today? What, how, how do we make this happen? How does the ideal, the ideal move into the realm of the real today? Well, in the first century world, the Jewish settlement, or the Jewish settlement, the Jewish society was a present-oriented one. And what does this mean, right? So this doesn't mean they didn't necessarily ignore the past, but it meant that when they looked and reflected on the past, they also left it there in, in the past, right? And they also knew that they couldn't control the future. Um, they have no idea, they can't control the outcomes of the future, so they didn't really fuss too much with that. But the way they found hope in the world was, was by looking around them day-to-day, looking for signs and glimpses. And when people saw the Christian community being lived out, albeit incompletely, they knew that it would be fulfilled, if not in their lifetime, at least in the lifetime of their descendants. And that was called faith. And this mindset allowed for the early Christian communities to experiment with all sorts of ways to live out the kingdom of God, while simultaneously trusting that that kingdom would grow, despite their own failings. And I imagine this early Christian community grew much like a snowball does when it rolls down a hill, right? So how did this whole thing start? So we have Jesus calling 12 people, 12 people say, yeah, okay. And so they take a step into this new way of life of following Christ, right? And so they take that step, they look around like, how's this feel? Yeah, that feels all right. And then whenever they feel okay enough, they take another step. And then they stop for a second, they, they look around, they're like, ah, you know what, okay, I'm gaining a little bit of confidence, and I'm going to take another step. And then take another step, and then take another step, and they get a little swagger going. And then they're taking step after step after step, they're picking up people all along the way. And then eventually, after they're into a light jog, I imagine at some point they just like, they stop, like, okay, so let's just reassess here. And what they do is they, they look back at where they came from, and I imagine they would be Super surprised at how dramatically different their life looks now than what it looked like when they took that first step. And I imagine that when they look back and try to even think about what they used to be like, it seemed very foreign to them. Like that was the old life. They were experiencing something new, a new birth like Paul talks about. St. Francis puts it another way. You start by doing what's necessary, then you do what's possible, and suddenly... You're doing the impossible. And there's another component to this whole thing of of trying to bring the ideal into the real that was present in both Denmark as well as the early church. So in our text from John 14, Jesus said one more thing in response to Thomas and Philip. Here's what he said. He said, The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. What does he mean by that? You know? I mean, Jesus was bringing people back from the dead, He was feeding 5,000 people with, like, a couple fish and some loaves of bread. And it's like, okay, really? Really, we're going to do greater things than you? I don't don't buy it. Shane Claiborne, author, activist, and theologian, says this about Jesus' response. He says, we shall do even greater things because the love that lived in the radical Christ now lives within millions of ordinary radicals all over the planet. What Shane is saying is that there is strength in numbers. And when all of us catch the vision for the kingdom of God and begin to actually live it, crazy things can happen, like what happened in Denmark and like what happened in the early church. But none of these things will happen without a vision that unites many. And none of these things will happen without that vision becoming flesh and bone, without communities acting out that vision. None of these things happen without both the idealists and the realists and this whole um, word becoming action thing this happens all over the place right we can see signs and glimpses everywhere it happens right here at 2nd it happens at the open table the open table is a new worshiping community that's been planted by 2nd Presbyterian Church we meet every 2nd and 4th Sunday night around shared meals, songs and discussions and many people who come say that the meal is their favorite part why is that? Free food? Eh, maybe. That's why I come. I'm totally, I'm, totally, I'm totally kidding. But I think the reason why they love that part specifically is because we try at the Open Table to be a place that's inclusive, that's a place that's open to all. And so we have folks from a variety of different socioeconomic backgrounds all gathered around the table. We've got folks who are young professionals, folks who are retirees, we have folks who are living disability check to disability check, and sometimes we have folks who are experiencing homelessness. And so all of us gather around that table. Now normally, outside of that place, we, we wouldn't necessarily bump shoulders with folks from different socioeconomic status. That's something that we have to be intentional about doing, right? Because we, we may live in different parts of town. We have jobs that, that we have different kinds of jobs. and so the beauty of what happens at the open table is people share food. They share stories, and those divisions that keep us divided start to melt away. And that point is where vision becomes action in the same space at the same time. And the same thing is true here at Second. The most striking example is our Be the Church Sunday that we do every year, right? This will be our third year of doing it, and in the fall, we gather together to catch the vision. And what do we do? We go to var- various places within the church, and we go to various pa- places all over town and we serve as an act of worship that's word becoming action and there's something magical and powerful that happens at the intersection of the word spoken and the action lived something mysterious and enticing comes to life when the idealist and the realist shake hands Christ's visionary ideals speak most loudly when we attempt to embody them That is where idealism and realism meet. That is where each word gets crafted into a divine act. And it is in those moments and in those spaces where we get to glimpse the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom where there is no rich or poor, slave or free, man or woman, Jew or Gentile. The kingdom where there is no need to fear. The kingdom where love abounds and there will be no more tears the kingdom where nations will beat their swords into plowshares, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, the kingdom where the LGBT community will have a home, will have a sanctuary, the kingdom where the young ones will have visions and the elders will dream dreams. Friends, this kingdom, this community, this way of life, this is our future. This kingdom is our eternal reality. But it can also be our present reality if we are just willing to believe it. To believe that it can be done, to believe that it is being done, and to believe that it will be done. And when we do believe, that is when the ideal becomes real. Amen.